Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey everyone, David Kern here. Welcome to Close Reads. Before we get into the show today with our special guests, Karen Swallow Pryor and Joshua Gibbs, who are joining Heidi White and I for our discussion of Frankenstein, I wanted to remind you about how you can join the conversation. Head over to Facebook, search for Close Reads in that search bar, and you can join the conversation over on the Close Reads podcast discussion group. And over on Instagram, you can follow us at Close Reads Podcasts. We also have our newsletter, which is closereads.substack.com. And we have bonus episodes and some sweet show swag over at patreon.com slash close reads, where we are currently discussing crime and punishment a little bit at a time. The Close Reads audience is the greatest audience in the podcast world, and we're thankful that you've taken the time to, to uh, be a part of it. So thanks for that. Thanks for listening. And with that, here is today's episode. Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by a regular contributor, Heidi White, and our good friends, Karen Swallow Pryor and Joshua Gibbs. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hello. Thanks, David. So we are here to discuss Frankenstein, as has been the case the last several weeks. We're here to discuss Volume 2, Chapters 6 through 9 of Frankenstein. In just a second, I'm going to ask Josh to kind of give us the rundown of what happened during those chapters. Because what I was noticing is that a lot of people couldn't put this book down. And so they read the whole thing. It's not terribly long. So they read the whole thing prior to the first episode or maybe sometime between the first and the second episode. So as is often the case with those of us who are on the show, sometimes we lose track of exactly which section we're talking about at any given time. So maybe a little summary can help with that. Um, Before we do that, though, I want to ask Karen a question. Because Karen, you're working on a annotated version of this book through B&H, as we've discussed. and I thought a lot about you during rereading this section because there is this question of virtue that runs throughout this whole section. And in On Reading Well, the, the concept of virtue is something that has, is front and center on the, the role that reading can play in helping us live virtuous lives and on the theme of virtue in literature. Is that why you chose this book to be one of the first, well, the first four that you decided to annotate. Now, I don't know how many, you know, you could probably do these annotated versions for the rest of your life, but you did choose, <laughs> you, you prioritized Frankenstein over many other books. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if that was part of why you, you chose to prioritize this book. That's actually a really good question. And the funny answer is no, um, because <laughs> um, I actually, it's so funny because in our first chapter for today, chapter six, I have the word virtue um, circled mm. and a note to myself to do a word count um, when I get the electronic text because yes, virtue, the word and the idea um, occur quite a bit in this work. So I actually wasn't, uh, I haven't taught this novel for, I don't think I've taught this novel since on reading well has mm. come out. Okay. And so rereading this for this program and for, uh, as I'm working on my edition, virtue is just sticking out to me far more. Um, but I will, I will say that it, it you know, it, I, I was aware of that and also a, a sort of counterintuitive fact um, about Shelley's mother, 
Mary Wollstonecraft, um, who wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Um, I love teaching that work, hmm. um, especially in a Christian environment, a conservative Christian environment, because um, my students sort of assume when we open up the text, the central text of the woman called the mother of modern feminism, um, <laughs> they're very surprised at what they see because, because Wollstonecraft talks about nothing more than virtue. Hmm. Um, and of course, we know that Shelley, you know, Mary Shelley's knowledge of her mother was only because her mother died shortly after her birth, that Mm -hmm. her knowledge was through her books primarily. um, Mm -hmm. And she read her mother's works um, a great deal. And Mm -hmm. so I see her mother's influence here um, in talking about virtue. And it's just something we don't normally associate with the romantics. and so, uh, so I, I, I have a note here to, to talk about that in my edition. So mm. good eye. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you, uh, before we dive deeper, I, I mean, you mentioned that it's not something that the romantics were known for and, and, and Heidi and Josh, you can jump in on this as well. Does that make her, um, distinct among the romantics or does it kind of reveal ways that Shelley is sort of, um, anti-romantic <laughs> compared to say her husband and the people that they were, you know, hanging out with? Yeah, I mean, I would say, um, and I would love to hear what Josh and Heidi have to say about this as well, but I I would say, I mean, when we're looking at the romantics and their sort of uh, reaction against the neoclassicism that preceded them, it's it's really a matter of emphasis. Um, So it's not as though, so when I teach, uh, when I teach, say, a a British literature survey class, and uh, we'll do things in chronological order, and we'll talk about how the neoclassical writers emphasized sort of the ethical aspect of the literature, and then the romantics come in and focus on the aesthetic. But it's not either or. It is a matter of emphasis, and I do think, and this has come up um, before with this Mm -hmm. novel, I do think that Mary Shelley is a romantic who is also interrogating romanticism. Um, And so I think her emphasis on virtue is more her mother's influence and goes against, you know, the the real lack of uh, virtue (laughs) among uh, her husband and his peers. So, Hmm. yeah. Josh, do you think that, um, well, first, let me ask this, how, how, how much, um, how into, into the romantic, the romantic writers are you personally? How into them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, are you really, really into yeah. them? <laughs> uh, I like them, but I don't like, like them. Yeah, but maybe you should, can you unpack that a little? Hold <laughs> <laughs> on your leg. Um, I enjoy romantic art a good bit. I think that romantic art was the first art I ever really appreciated for its own sake. Um, Romantic writers, I have uh, deep experience with a very few of them. So I don't have a broad knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, I've read a few. Like the highlights? Yeah, and I've I've read those many times. Um, But... uh, in my mind, because romanticism is so reactionary, it ends up unwittingly absorbing an awful lot about neoclassicism um, by accident, and often in sort of embarrassing ways that uh, that the romantics might not have been able to identify. Uh, neoclassicists and romantics seem a good bit like you know Tom and Jerry to me. Uh, they, they're at odds with one another, but they also desperately need one another as well. 
And so in a book like um, Frankenstein, I see a lot of analogs between Frankenstein and a book like Rousseau's Social Contract, wherein hmm. romantics and neoclassicists claim to disagree on an awful lot, but they're often two sides of the same coin. So hmm. it, it seems to me that almost any romantic, to be a romantic is to straddle romanticism and neoclassicism. Hmm. I mean, for example, romantics and neoclassicists both like drugs. They just like very different kinds of drugs. The neoclassical drug is Ritalin uh, or something like that. Don't take that statement literally, but drugs that allow for greater control. Whereas the romantic drug is opium, a drug that um, allows for release. But they both have a kind of fixation. Their rival fixations are often manifested in the same way. Uh, they're both interested in the individual, um, uh, albeit different sorts of expressions of um, the goodness of the individual. Uh, and so, you know, you see this in Rousseau's social contract as well. Um, Rousseau's social contract is both taught as a neoclassical text uh, or an enlightened text and a romantic text. It, it has both elements in it. So, but, but Karen was talking about how the book was an investigation of neoclassicism, um, which I think any investigation of neoclassicism from a romantic standpoint will end up borrowing an awful lot of neoclassicism just to conduct the investigation. Hmm. So when we say that it's an examination of neoclassicism or romanticism, how, to what extent do we think that she was, um, that it was a examination of those things sort of because of her osmosis of those, <laughs> of those worlds or because she was actively, you know, trying to make a statement about it, you know, like how much of it was her exploring, you know, what was going on in her own head and her own experiences and with and experiencing life with people who were, you know, key figures of romanticism and having, you know, learned about neoclassicism, although maybe she didn't call it that, but, and then how much of it was, you know, she was making, she was writing a thesis about it. Uh, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that she's writing a thesis on it, but she certainly has a kind of backroom view of both neoclassicism and romanticism. Uh, given, given William Godwin's thoughts on political justice, um, she has a sort of backroom view of what it means to be neoclassical. Uh, she gets to see the kind of unsavory side of neoclassicism living with William Godwin, but she also gets to see the seedy underbelly of romanticism. I mean, she just has a, she has a, an insider's view on both of these things, having spent her life with William Godwin and Percy Shelley, who might be, you know, more fitting exemplars of, of either school of thought. Mm. Okay. So let's take a step back here. I mean, and then we're going to take a step forward into the book. Um, it strikes me that for some people, we may be talking about terms that are you know, undefined that we have, we haven't necessarily defined them clearly. Um, Heidi, you can jump in here if you want or whoever, whoever wants to do this, but could we do a quick definition of each of these terms? We've talked about romanticism a lot. I think people will have a sense of that if they've been listening. What's the difference, the big differences between neoclassicism and romanticism? Karen, could you, could you speak to that? Like the big differences between sure. those two sure. schools? Sure. Um, so neoclassicism is considered really, uh, at least in, in the, in British literature, roughly the eight, you know, the, the, the middle early to middle 18th century. You could even say it goes as far back as, you know, just the enlightenment 1660. 
So, I mean, like the word suggests, it is a new sort of classical period, a return to ancient classicism. So in art and literature uh, and thinking, um, the neoclassicists used as their model um, ancient Greek thought. Um, And so I, I guess... In terms of the aesthetics of neoclassicism, um, this is some, you know, sort of some illustrations that I often draw upon is that, uh, is that, you know, if, if you think about architecture, um, the neoclassical, uh, you know, the, the, the exemplary build, building would be one that is symmetrical and has columns and is even and um, and regular. And so you will see in much, not all, of course, the literature uh, of the neoclassical age a similar pattern. So we have in Alexander Pope heroic couplets that are very neat, even, and regular. Um, whereas in Romanticism, if we want to use an architectural kind of metaphor, it would be like a medieval um, cathedral, which is irregular and dark and mysterious and uh, you know has flying buttresses and gargoyles on, on the top. And so Spires. the literature... Yes. So the literature will also you know, emphasize the mysterious, the supernatural, the dark, um, the intuitive rather than the logical. Um, so we can see, you know, so as we talked about earlier, one is kind of a reaction against the other, but it really is, uh, more a matter of emphasis. Everything doesn't fall neatly, uh, in, in, in those categories, but basically neoclassicism is sort of the the child of um the enlightenment um and the scientific age and romanticism is kind of the uh you know the 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 rebellion against that mm. um so i don't know if anyone wants to add anything else i do i'm i'm really interested in the question of virtue that david brought up and also the other question that david brought up two very good questions uh which is <laughs> How much was uh, Mary Shelley examining these things critically and how much was she so immersed in them that they're just part of the furniture of her mind and she's just, you know, accepting them and putting them into her work. And I'm not sure about the second one. And I thought about that a lot as I was reading. Uh, it's, but to go back to the question of virtue, it's long been understood in Western culture and in Western literature, specifically that virtue is the golden mean, the mean between two extremes. And Karen, you talk about this a lot in On Reading Well, and it's brilliant. It's one of the best expositions of this in literature I've ever seen. But it's pervasive throughout literature. What is virtue? Virtue is the mean between two extremes. To be courageous is to not be rash, nor to be cowardly, but to be in the golden mean. And that comes from Aristotle. And um, the and what Josh, what you were saying earlier made me think of this with neoclassicism and romanticism, which are both celebrations of extremes. And you have extreme rationalism and then you have extreme emotion and sentiment and sentiment and and the internal world versus the external world, these things. And and there's no middle ground between them. There's a, a distinction. We're reading something neoclassical. We're reading something romantic. You can recognize it right off the bat and uh, if you're looking for it and if you have the language for it. Even if you don't have the language for it, you're going to notice that they feel different and they're talking about different things. So we're not trying to use a lot of jargon. We just actually have a name for it, you know. Um, but in this particular section, I kept thinking about 
basically what David was asking, is she doing this critically or not? Because the monster in many ways sounds so adolescent, right? I get one chance to be happy. And if not, I'm going to ruin the world. Like, and it's, it's just so overwrought, which is people's main criticism with this book. And, um, Frankenstein should, the monster should have read how to be unlucky. Right. <laughs> yes. And on reading well, thank yeah. you. If you could just read Paradise Lost well, but there's, there's just this celebration of extremism and, or is it a celebration or is it a critique? Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the interesting questions of this novel. Is she looking at it critically or is she, who's only 20, actually believe the monster only has one chance and put this puts this in the book. And, and I think that's one of the interesting interpretive questions and goes to whether or not you accept our narrator's voices at face value or whether there's something a little deeper and more hmm. critical going on. Hmm. Hey, Josh, when you were teaching all of this, you know, in light of what Heidi's saying there, when you're teaching this book and you've read it, what'd you say? Thir this is your 13th time, 14th time, something like yeah, that? Somewhere 12, 13th. Yeah. That's a lot of, that's a lot of readings. Um, how much do you spend, do you find yourself thinking about questions like the one we're talking about now, about the degree to which it's, you know, a romantic book or a neoclassical book? And then how much do you feel like you need to actually, you know, so, you know, talk about that with your students? So on the one hand, how, how much do you find yourself, yeah. you know, thinking about it at this point? And then on the other hand, how much do you feel like you need to ta actually talk about that? <laughs> I guess what I'm asking is, is this conversation a waste of time? No, it's not. It's not. I think it, there's so many important conversations to have in this book that, it, that that question shouldn't dominate a reading of it. Um, but I think everyone knows that. And, and the question of, you know, whether it's a critique or a celebration, I mean, if you've got three weeks to spend on the book, that's one good day of conversation, maybe two. Uh, I don't think that the whole book comes down to that. Um, over the years, my favorite introduction to the neoclassical versus romantic debate is a, a book I reference all the time, Solomon Among the Postmoderns by Peter Lightheart, which is one of the best modern history books I've ever read. And there's a lot in that book which um, carefully shows the, the rival promises made by neoclassicists and romanticists, and as well as a, a picture of how the last 200 years has been largely incapable of choosing a side in the debate. And rather modern popular culture is just this endless oscillation uh, between the two with occasional unfortunate attempts to make an alloy of them. But popular culture just keeps coming back to um, the Apollonian of the neoclassical period and the Dionysian of the Romantics. And there are certainly a few points in the book that lend themselves to a conversation about that. Hmm. If, can I, I, I just want to make an observation about this question, David, yeah, please. Um, and it, I mean, it, as we said earlier, I think understanding Mary Shelley's life, uh, and what she's trying, perhaps is trying to do in this book is, is probably more important in this novel than, than any other really that I can think of. Um, but there's also something that we can learn about, art and artists by thinking about this question. And that is that I think, I mean, ultimately we, we never really know 
I mean, unless the person sits down and tells us that because they're still alive or whatever, um, and we can believe them. Um, but we can, we don't always usually know what an artist's intention is. Um, but I think, you know, this is why artists are like prophets because they see and receive a message about the times hmm. and they may not understand it or translate it or know what to think about it, but they see it and they communicate it. So they're paying attention to things that other people are not paying attention to and they're sharing what they see. And that's the most significant thing they do, whether or not they, or how much they sort of understand or translate what it is that they're seeing. Hmm. Does that make sense? Hmm. I completely agree with that. And I, I am... I do have kind of a nerdy geek out pleasure in trying to categorize books within their historical context. And is this mm-hmm. whatever, can I put a piece of jargon on it? I like that stuff, but I'm way more interested in that on the human level and on the level of how does that then, how should we mm-hmm. then live? Right. And so whether or not it's romantic, neoclassic, whether or not she's critiquing or accepting, that stuff is interesting insofar as it addresses those questions uh, that are profoundly human and relevant for our own times as readers in our own cultural moment, readers in this generation, they're trying to figure out what to do with the monster, which is real. And I think I would, you know, I, I guess I, we could just say that no work of art or literature is good if it completely accepts or completely rejects the time in which it is in, right? Because it, it, That's good. it there's no critical distance there. So, hmm. Um, yeah. hmm. well, let's, let's uh, segue into the, into this section then. Um, so again, part uh, volume two. Volume two, chapters six through nine, and and Josh, I you know, I told people at the top you'd give a little summary. So, can you uh, take it away and just kind of remind us what happened? Sure. Chapter six is an account of the history of the DeLacy family and their relationship with a fellow known as the Turk and his daughter Safi. We should probably wait until a little bit later in the conversation to go to much further into their story because there's so much uh, of of significance in this chapter. Um, uh, Suffice to say that um, the the saga of the DeLacy DeLacy family and the Turk and Safi is sort of an idealized retelling uh, of Mary's life with her father and with Percy. There are a number of um, interesting analogies between the DeLacy's life and the Godwin's mm. life. Um, we have a, a father who promises his daughter to a young man, uh, betrays that promise, and so on and so forth. But that's chapter six, and we learn um, of how Safi ultimately came to the cottage uh, and why it is that this family, the DeLacy's who used to be great, has fallen into a, a kind of bad reputation. Uh, chapter seven is the chapter where the monster first begins reading classic literature and discovering himself in the stories uh, of Paradise Lost, Sorrows of Young Verder, and Plutarch's Lives. And uh, in reading those books, he comes to understand not only um, what his duties might be, um, but what um, duties other people might have to him. 
and I think that uh, this is what prompts him um, to seek out uh, to seek out Victor. Uh, he realizes that Victor owes him something, uh, and he realizes this in studying human history, human virtue, the mythology of, of human creation, and so forth. Um, chapter eight. Uh, well, excuse me. Chapter seven concludes with the monster uh, trying to present himself to to the DeLacy family uh, in a way that he thinks will be favorable to his intention, which is to ingratiate himself into the family and become a kind of surrogate son. Uh, this fails. He has to quit the cottage. Uh, he burns the cottage to the ground after the DeLacy family in terror moves off. Uh, the monster has a series of interactions with people in his um, perambulations after departing the cottage, none of which end well. Uh, finally, he discovers <laughs> something in the pocket of a coat that he stole from Victor on his way out of Victor's apartment that gives the address or gives reference to who Victor is. And so he goes and seeks him. Uh, after finding... Um, Victor's family near Geneva. Uh, he kills William in the story that we encountered earlier in the book. Uh, and then having finished his story, he makes his request one more time, or he makes his request formal. I need a wife. Uh, Victor debates the matter for a moment. The monster offers all sorts of promises and securities uh, that he'll leave Victor alone if he just gives him what he wants. Uh, and Victor begrudgingly agrees in the end. Okay, so <clears throat> this section obviously raises the question uh, of whether or not <laughs> whether or not uh, Frankenstein should go ahead and fulfill the request of the monster. Should he make the uh, make make Frankenstein's bride? Um, and I want to talk about that in a minute. But I want to ask you guys a question first because what we're what we've gotten here over these last several chapters is the monster's account of his adventures. And one of the things that we talked about quite a bit over the first few episodes was the question of characters being trustworthy in all these stories that are layered upon one another like an onion. Josh, you've talked about whether Victor Frankenstein is trustworthy. And you, you, you pointed out places where he seems to be contradicting himself. What do we think then of the, the trustworthiness of the monster himself in this retelling? Does he seem to be, do you think that he is uh, perhaps the one character in the story who is trustworthy? Um, and if so, why might that be? Or do we think that he is just another in a long line of characters who uh, we have to take what they're saying with a grain of salt? Any of you can jump in here. Josh, you can maybe, get, if you want to jump in first, you can. I know you've got strong opinions on trustworthiness of characters in this book. <laughs> well, it's one thing to... It's one thing to question what the monster says about his past, but uh, mm -hmm. the end of his speech uh, contains a lot of promises about what the future will hold. Um, and so I'm, I'm less inclined to doubt the monster's account of what has happened, although I am suspicious that uh, all the monster's promises to uh, give Victor what he wants, leave him alone, be good, go off to some you know, far-flung country and, and never talk with anybody again, uh, I don't... I don't have a reason to to believe that it were, would all pan out that way just because the monster says so. Um, and, and part of the reason for that is uh, every time we make some, every time 
a person declares some object or other person uh, to be not only the source of their happiness, but to be the source of their goodness. Every time one person transforms another human being into a sacrament of righteousness, you have an idolatry that is doomed to fail. Uh, so w when the monster claims, give me what I want and I'll be happy and I'll be good and everything will be great for the rest of time, uh, that seems like, uh, like Heidi mentioned earlier, that seems like the naivete of youth speaking. I mean, I could remember, I could remember in my, you know, sullen teenage days thinking that if I just had a girlfriend, everything would be perfect, which is daft. That's stupid. Uh, some things would be better and then some things would be far more difficult. Um, so I guess, the, I guess my short answer is I, I don't have much of a reason to doubt that the monster has done what he has said he's done, um, but I'm not sure that he will do all that he says he will do. Heidi, are we going to add to that? Yeah, I, I think that Josh is right on. The connection between virtue and happiness is a, a very big question in literature and in the human soul uh, and in societies on every level of human existence, we're asking the question, how do good and happy fit together? And to go back to Aristotle, his claim uh, and the ancients claim, the classical claim is that happiness is a result of virtue, not that virtue is a result of happiness. And so these, and that's long accepted at least within Western culture, and I think within the Christian ethic. And, and, and that's reversed here. And this is a book of reversals. This is a book of, of it is not that, that the creator loves the creation and pursues relationship, but that the creator rejects the creation and pushes away relationship. This is a book of, mm. of profound reversals throughout the entire thing. And this is one of the reversals. And so the question is, if you make me happy, then I will be good. Is I, that, I mean, that's a core belief of the monster. And we are right to question that. Does the reversal that you're talking about, though, give more credence to his claim? I don't, well, I think that that's one of the explorations of the second part of the novel, because that that's the should question that you were talking about. Should, uh, Victor Frankenstein make another monster? Is he just doubling the evil or is he mitigating the evil? Uh, is he resolving it? Um, and the monsters claim over and over again, which I think is extremely adolescent to your point, Josh, I made this same exact claim because I am prone to all of the uh, pitfalls and failings of the romantics. <laughs> So, <laughs> Karen, Karen, you talked about how you're anti-romantic in every way. Like, left to <laughs> myself, I would become the monster. So, this is like the the reversal in my own heart of maybe virtue leads to happiness, not happiness leads to virtue. That's like a very profound change for me in my personal journey. So I recognize it in the monster, right? I'm, I'm sensitive to it. My radar is up when I see it. Um, and this goes to, you know, you bring yourself to your interpretation of a novel um, and learn from that, hopefully. Um, so I think that your, your question, David, is, is does it give credence to his claim? I think is a big, uh, the rest of the novel does not bear out that um, to answer it one way or the other. 
I think. I think it's, we, we can either cast judgment or feel like pity for the monster based on what happens next. Um, and, it, and so I do think that this kind of goes back to the question is, is she critiquing or is she accepting? I can't always tell, honestly, I really can't. Hmm. Karen, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I have lots of thoughts here. Okay. So I, <laughs> I want to, um, yeah, I want to nuance this uh, point about the narrator and and maybe use a different term. I, I think we talked a couple of episodes ago about. Um, I, I could be wrong, but my contention is that you know the unreliable narrator is kind of something that happens later in literature, and is it's we're kind of retrofitting that here. What made this novel so shocking to contemporary readers and critics was that there was, was not the unreliability of the narrator or narrators, since we have several narrators, but the morality of the narrators and the lack of a normative narrative voice. So in other words, we have, you know, we have Walton's story, we have Frankenstein's story, we have the monster's story, but we don't have an overarching narrative voice who's telling us how to interpret the morality and the stories of these narrators. Mm, yeah. The monster just gives his story and we critique it as we just have. We say, wait, there's something really wrong with this, but we have to do that because there is no narrator outside, whether first person or third person, because both certainly had a, a long history, even by this time. Um, hmm. There's no normative narrative voice cueing us in about how to interpret each of these narrators. Hmm. That's what was so shocking to contemporary readers, what was so different. Um, and uh, I think we can rely on each of these narrators hmm. e expressing what they think and believe and that they're telling the stories as they see them. But we're still left with the problem, what do we think about those stories? Because we don't have some, you know, great... Uh, capital A author or na capital N narrator out there telling us how to interpret them. Mm. Hmm. And this was, this was the first time that that was done or is it just a first time it was done? Um, it was, I mean, the, the, I don't know if it was the first, but it was the first time it was such like, like a shocking subject. <laughs> oh, fair. Um, yeah, yeah, I see what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, you know, yeah. that, that, you know, the, I mean, obviously there, there's so many huge moral questions here yeah. and no one is telling, no narrator is telling us what to think about those questions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's no sage guide to, right, to help you. Right. Out. Yeah, perspective right. on it. Yeah, I mean, and maybe it is really. I mean, we've talked about the frame narr narrative and um, and the reliance that Shelley has on, say, Coleridge's Rime of the Ancient Mariner. But even as you know, the Rime of the Ancient Mariner is very straightforward in its morality. You know, it's it's it doesn't it's it, so maybe this is oh, one yeah, of the first yeah. works that that really leaves this. We don't have the mariner telling us <laughs> the moral at the end. So at the, um, at the end of this chapter nine, then um, Frankenstein has made his decision. He says, um, I concluded after a long pause of reflection, I concluded that the justice due both to him and my fellow creatures demanded of me that I should comply with his request. Turning to him, therefore, I said, I consent to your demand on your solemn oath to quit Europe forever and every other place in the neighborhood of man as soon as I shall deliver into your hands a female who will accompany you in your exile. 
So by the end of this section, he has made his decision. And uh, does, do you think that, Karen, I'll ask you this first. Do you think that the book um, thinks he made the right decision? I mean, or you can answer if you think he made the right decision, but I... <laughs> You mean at this point in the story? Yeah, like just the books. What does the book want him to seem to want him to to choose? If that makes if that makes sense. I mean, or you can just say, "What do you think was the right choice?" <laughs> but again, at this, just at this yeah, point, yeah, right? And yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. Um, um, I I mean, I think in the world of the story at this point, it is the right choice because there's so much emphasis on friendship and love and the need for companionship. Um, and I think that, you know, Frankenstein is feeling guilty uh, for having made this creature and abandoned him and leaving him alone. Um, he wants family. He wants friendship, Frankenstein himself. And so... I think at this point we are supposed to sympathize with the monster and with Frankenstein. Josh, you unmuted yourself. So let's do something a little difficult, maybe impossible for just a moment and pretend that we don't know what's going to come after <laughs> volume. <laughs> yeah. Uh, assuming we don't know what comes after, does Victor really have a choice in what he tells the monster at the end of his story? <laughs> I mean, within his own mind, what are the options here? <laughs> yes or no. And the monster follows him back to, <laughs> follows him back to Geneva yeah. uh, and begins systematically killing the rest of his family. I think within Victor's mind, that might actually be what the options are. Um, and, and so th this justification of, well, it was an interesting point, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is just putting a kind of rational spin on an irra uh, on irrational fear that's led, led him to make a not really a free choice. I mean, yeah. the, well, let's go ahead and admit, Victor doesn't make this decision freely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a threat. I mean, he makes the decision. He's responsible for it. If the will won't will, nothing can force it, as Beatrice says. But it's not exactly a free choice. There's a threat for saying no. Yeah. And I think we might, we might ask whether Victor consents to the request, not for any of the reasons that he states, but just because he's been threatened and he's fearful of what will happen. He's if back he, in New York. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking about how, if you read it, if you read it from that perspective, um, the, some of the things that he says, re reflecting on on his own thought process, are pretty funny. Like the the degree to which he pretends that he's this great philosopher and has these great deep reasons. If you think about it from the perspective that he doesn't have a choice, it makes yes. him seem, you know, uh, like he thinks he's a lot smarter than he is. It makes him seem like a teenager, kind of. Right. Like I paused to reflect some time on all that he had related and the various arguments which he had employed. I thought of the promises of virtues which he had displayed on the opening of his existence and the subsequent blight of all kindly feeling by the loathing and scorn which his protectors had manifested towards him. You know, like all these, you know, he, 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 gets, high, he gets to use a phrase you might hear around here in the barbershop. He gets a little highfalutin. Um, and I actually have heard that phrase in a barbershop. It was a great day. One of the great days of my life. Um, heard it out in the wild. Um, but there is a, there is a, um, there is a sense in which he, he seems to be trying, is, is he trying to, is in doing that, then is he trying to make himself look better to his reader because of what happens later and what's happened so far? Like, is he trying to find ways to insert his own 
uh, to to sh- to show in some way or that he is virtuous despite everything that's happened. Yes, he is, and everybody yeah. does that. As someone yes. who's done that many times yeah. myself, yeah. there's no way to not do that. When you do something morally ambiguous that has consequences to it, you go back and retell the story in your head and justify it to others. That's what you do. That's the human response, and that's what he does here. And and there's um, what here's what I th- think the class, this is what I think classical uh, thinking completely misses that the Christian ethic fills in. And that is that can anybody be happy or good or both without love ever, without being profoundly loved and loving in return. And that, that's, that, that's the mitigation of the gap between happiness and goodness is love. And, and in that sense, if the question is, should Victor make a companion for the monster. I, I mean, there's all kinds of pragmatic concerns with that, right? There's all kinds of, would they just be, again, doubling the evil or would it be, you know, you can look at it from all kinds of philosophical perspectives, but when it comes down to it, I think he should, because at this point in the novel, he should, because there's no other way for the monster to ever have to love or be beloved. And, and that is the cornerstone of human existence. There is no hope without that ever. And so you take the risk. So that's my, mm. that's, that's what I think at this point, how you answer that should question is what, what happens then if the monster is always profoundly alone, that's a cruel torment to any creature and, and, and wrong not to attempt uh, to, to mitigate that and resolve that. Um, and so I, I, I do think that that's the only answer to the question, but it's such an enormous risk. And that goes again to the extremes that we're talking about within the, the romantic kind of sensibilities. And, and let's not forget that, that Frankenstein is a retelling of the creation story that is retold in Paradise Lost of the creation story in Genesis, right? So, so we have the true creation, the true and good creation story in, in story in Genesis, and then we have Milton's wonderful but somewhat, you know, problematic and and yep. <laughs> uh, and and agenda uh, laden um, retelling of uh, the Genesis account in Paradise Lost. And then we have this account and this account really is wrestling with, you know, does a good God Mm -hmm. make fallen creatures or creatures able to fall? Um, And the answer in this story is not a very good Mm -hmm. one, but this is, this is a question that, that the novel is asking is what kind of God makes creatures able to fall? Um, And what does he do when he's done that? Um, I completely agree. And it conflates, in many ways, this story conflates the Prometheus account with the the Christian uh, story mm-hmm. and that the idea of forbidden knowledge within mm-hmm. the Prometheus myth that fire is a good thing that's being withheld from its from the creatures by the creator. It conflates that with the creation story in Genesis uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. saying that the knowledge really... At heart, although it's not explicitly stated, it is implicitly within the threads of this novel that God, the 
the Christian God, the creator is withholding something good from the create from the creation. Uh, and that's assumed within this novel that the withholding of that mm-hmm. knowledge is an act of cruelty by the creator toward the creation. Hmm. It's interesting then that here he has to, you know, he has to beg for the companion and of course, in mm-hmm, Genesis, mm-hmm. that's that's Adam doesn't really have to, you know, repeatedly beg and and plead for. But he does in Paradise Lost, and that's the account that he has. Adam goes to God and asks for a companion, and God answers and and gives him the request. So there's there's all kinds of religious. Um, implications and assumptions within this, which is typical for the romantics, that there's there's mm-hmm, this this mm-hmm. question, this subversive nature towards institutionalized religion, which we all we all know what that's like in a society. So there's but there she is asking the question, and in many ways not even asking the question, making the statement. It's an assumed posture in the novel that the creator is withholding good from the creation. Hmm. Uh, speaking of uh, religious implications, Josh, it felt like you were about to confess something, and I would hate to uh, to hate for you to to lose a chance to confess something. <laughs> I don't know if it was a confession. Uh, I'm I'm intrigued by the monster's requests as parallel to Adam's requests, and and so while I, while I think it's often the case that. In the beginning of things and at the end of things, the rules are slightly different. Uh, whereas in the middle of things, there's a kind of um, continuation and, and normalcy and standard that has to be recognized. Um, I have two questions about, or two observations about the creation of the second monster. Uh, the first of which is, if the creation of the, of the first monster involved impiety, then does the creation of a second monster not also involve impiety? Great point. Um, and, if, and if the creation of a second monster involves impiety, how can it be justified? Um, and if it doesn't involve it, how can it be a true companion to the first monster? That's right. I think point. that it's true. Um, so I, I ask that not as a rhetorical question. That's a fair question um, that, that I'm intrigued by potential answers to uh, the other the other observation maybe is that while the rules are different in the beginning and while the rules are different in the end um what we have being set up here uh is a, is an uncomfortable sexual relationship uh that mirrors victor's relationship with elizabeth uh because what the monster has asked for is a sister basically to marry um, there's no way of viewing a second monster as anything other than a sister. Uh, both, both monsters would share, uh, the same progenitor. Um, and, uh, at least with Adam and Eve, that's not exactly what's on the line. Although again, uh, we've all wondered, um, we've all wondered about, I don't know who Cain married and must it have been his sister and was there a choice? So I get it. In the, in the beginning, the rules are different. Um, but is what the monster is asking for, does what the monster wants essentially boil down to uh, a parallel relationship between Victor's unhealthy relationship with Elizabeth? Or do we have to view this as, as being potentially different? That's a great point. 
A great point. And my earlier point of, yes, he should make the, the companion was based on the assumption that nobody else would love the monster and perhaps that's flawed. And maybe that's mm-hmm. what it comes down to is Victor should parent his monster, should love him and make a way, make room for him instead of rejecting him. Yeah, I was I was struck by the fact that you know he goes to the old man, the the, the blind man, and to, to Lacey, and because <clears throat> he realizes that the man can't see him, and so if he can just talk to him and get him to defend him and say, you know, this is a nice guy, then the people won't take him, you know, judge him just based on the way he looks, and it's you know that instinct does not also he doesn't he doesn't think if I go to the one who created me. He will teach me, and he will help other people understand that I'm not what I look like. Now, he never that never even occurs to him to go to to go to Frankenstein and say the only thing he does is say you hate me, so I'm gonna if you don't if you don't do what I ask and make me a companion, I'm gonna yeah. kill you and everyone you love. That's the only instinct he has because he seems to understand the terms. Maybe it's that when he was standing at the foot of the bed. And Frankenstein freaked out. That that set the terms of the of the war. <laughs> and Frankenstein just accepted them. Both Frankenstein and the monster seemed to have accepted them in that moment. There was never any, you know, there was never any discussion that the terms could be different, or there was a different way forward, or different possibilities for for them to even have a relationship. Um, and and I and I was that's maybe that's the thing that is kind of the most heartbreaking in a way is that that's never even a discussion that happens. There's no. There's no instinct in either of them to to have a relationship between creator and and creation. It's, it's, not, it's not, not not even up for discussion, unless I miss something. So, there, there's so much othering that goes on yes. in this novel. I mean, that's a whole um, other field of inquiry. Is um, is just what the novel suggests about the other capital O about. Um, races um and we have different races in the story itself Mm -hmm. but then if you know if we think of the monster um in terms of racial discussions and who is fit and proper for companionship friendship marriage and um you know the kinds of questions that we've asked and the kinds of ways we've approached that in our culture which you know with very different eyes look very similar to what's happening in this novel. I mean, we just recently celebrated um, in Virginia Loving Day, uh, the day in which uh, Virginia was required by law to to allow um, people of two different races to marry. And, and, and we're almost, we're probably not quite there, but we're almost in a place where we can look at that past as being as bizarre as the one here where it was just assumed that this this creature could not be a fit companion for any, whether, uh, you know, spouse or friend to anyone else. Um, and that's one of the things that that's one of the, again, one of the, the fascinations of this novel, I'm sure Shelley wasn't necessarily trying to do that, but th- she sure. was so tapped into the questions of her time that are still questions for our time that it continues to illuminate things like this. Hmm. How does the, um, the paradise lostness of it all fit into this to this theme. Uh, you have he seems to see the monster that is seems to see in himself or compare himself to Satan in Paradise Lost. Um, and you know he he seems to 
I mean, there's obvious reasons why Shelley chooses to use that book um, as it, for what you guys were just touching on. But wh- why does he... Does, is it because he is one of those people that sees the devil as the main, the main, the protagonist of Paradise Lost, or is he? See, is it the the devil's rejection? Is it that he he reads the devil as this you know ugly brute creature that you know and he identifies with him? What? Why does he see? Why do you think he sees himself in that character in Paradise Lost? I. Among other things, and I want to hear everybody's other things, it's because he has hell within him. And that's the definition of Satan within paradise. Everywhere I go is hell. I myself am hell. He encounters hell everywhere. He creates hell everywhere because he himself is hell. But he was created glorious. And I I think that there's something... Like so profound in that. And by far Satan, he is the best character in Paradise Lost. Um, not, I mean, you mean like whether or not in terms he's, of his complexity? Yes, he's so, he's a great character. Um, and it just, in literary history, Milton Satan is on the, t- in, in the top list. And because of that, like there's just this, should we have an argument about that? Maybe so. Sure. I, I made a definitive <laughs> statement. I didn't know there was another point of view on that. I'm happy to hear it. But um, there's uh, that, and that's the that's what the monster is wrestling with. And and I think that that it this discussion of the books that he reads, and and then the finding out that he himself is his own hell is, I mean, that's just very profound reflections there. He reads these books, his soul is elevated. He thinks he loves virtue, but at the first sign of adversity, he creates destruction. And that you can't love virtue and then not apply it when it's hard. Like he doesn't love virtue. Mm -hmm. He thinks he does because his soul is elevated by these words and inspired by them. But the whole point of virtue, the whole point of virtue is that you maintain it when it is challenged or else you don't have it and you didn't love it. And that, that, but that's what he's saying is I am, I am hell. That goes back to the, sorry, go ahead. No, now, no, lag. Go the ahead. thing the thing that's missing in the monster though is and the thing that's profoundly absent in Milton Satan even though he knows that he is hell is there's no repentance never like never does the monster sorrow or grieve or repent and neither does Milton Satan and in that they're like twinsies but on the other hand how would he know how to i mean people aren't necessarily you know anybody who has little kids knows that you know being virtuous when it's difficult does not always come easy that's something there is a we talk about how we have to train people right um in, in a, i mean i'm in an overly simplistic way we we'll use that word train but virtue is something that <clears throat> it takes you, you never really master you know being virtuous right. in difficult situations and so he has no he has no mentor he has no one uh, modeling what that looks like. He has no one showing him how to repent or, or, you know, modeling what repentance looks like. You know, there's no, you know, there's, there's no relationship there to reveal to him what that might look like, which is, which I think I would argue is uh, not how 
is not true for Satan in, in Paradise Lost. But he has Paradise Lost, right? So the monster has, he has the models. He, and he, he, he picked a type to imitate. And that is, I, and again, I think that that some, somewhat goes to the, the, the weak point of an education that's based entirely on types, right? Which is what he had. He had types to observe. He had the family, the DeLacy's to observe, and he had the books. And he still failed the test when it came down to it because he had no humility. And to your point, does that have to be, does that just Hmm. something that you find a type to imitate? I don't know. I think that that's one of the the questions of an education. And and I think that it does delve into that. It's never occurred to me that the virtue that the monster was lacking or that led to his problems was lack of humility. That was interesting. Hmm. When you said that, that was, that was interesting. I've never thought about that before. I've, I've, I think part, I think maybe my instinct is, has always been that you, you make a good point about how he has Plutarch you know, he has Plutarch's lives and he has Paradise Lost. I think the choice of Plutarch's lives in that way is really interesting because obviously for centuries they've been, those stories have been models for people. But is it that he has the wrong or he he lacks certain virtues like humility or is it that he he has incomplete visions of what virtues actually are? I mean, there's an immaturity to the way he would be able to understand and express them, right? Like just reading Plutarch's, sure, there are models that are, that are there, but um, it takes a lot of wisdom to take them out of the specific context and apply them to an, a different context than the one in, in, you know, the life of Solon, for example. Josh, were you going to say something? Yeah, I mean, I was going to agree with your point that, that while the monsters read Paradise Lost, it doesn't seem as though he's read it very closely. It seems maybe I could almost believe that he got bored around nine books in and simply skipped the end of it. (laughs) Where's the battles? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from the point that um, Michael begins lecturing Adam on on the future history of the world. I mean, a lot of students zone out at that point. Maybe the monsters zoned out as well. He skipped the wailing parts of Moby Dick, too. Yeah. And and it's interesting. (laughs) Who doesn't? The monster... (laughs) The monster reads Paradise Lost and and seems to only trust the book up to about halfway through. And, and by that point, he's developed his impression of all of the characters that's incomplete. And, and these impressions are never challenged by the way that the, the book concludes. So... Uh, it, it's interesting to me that, that uh, you know, he reads Paradise Lost and, and Satan is such a seductive figure that the fact it's a, Paradise Lost is a cautionary tale is lost on him. Um, he simply absorbs the most arresting image that he finds. And he doesn't have a guide. There's no one to help the monster through the book. Um, and, I, and I would say that for, for the average adolescent, Paradise Lost is not a book you should read on your own. Like, you should get someone to help you through it. Um, and, and Frankenstein might be a great case for why people need guides through great literature, uh, at least when they're young. Um, you know, when you're old and, and you've allowed books like, you know, Paradise Lost and Plutarch's Lives to train you. Um, then you can become the teacher and go off on your own. But um, uh, the dangers of autodidacticism are are on Marianne. the line in, in 
Yeah, in the monster's story. It might be worth um, looking at a couple of those passages um, closely um, where he is talking about reading, because I think what Josh has said is really insightful. Um, So there's uh, in chapter seven, yeah, about, um, you know, it's the second page or so into it when he's reading um, the Solos of Werther. He says, as I read, however, I applied much personally to my own feelings and condition. I found myself similar, yet at the same time, strangely unlike the beings concerning whom I read and to whose conversation I was a listener. I sympathized with and partly understood them, but I was unformed in mind. I was dependent on none and related to none. Um, That seems like it was exactly what Josh was just talking about in the dangers of autodidacticism. Um, And then, you know, he has sort of a similar reaction um, as he continues reading Plutarch's Lives and Paradise Lost. Um, So, yeah, I mean, this is just, uh, it came up last time too, but this is just a really key section on education and, and the potential of education, but also it's, it's shortcomings. I mean, it's, it's just not, it's not a magic bullet, you know, reading a book isn't a magic bullet, Re- even good books. Um, so. Right. Well, and I don't, I don't mean to keep harping on this, but I'm going to keep harping on it. He has nobody to love him. And that You're the is, melody of this podcast. <laughs> I like that. I'll take it. But that that's, that's the thing that's missing. He has the types mm-hmm. and we do a lot. We talk a lot about types in education. Uh, he has them. Victor had them right in a lot of ways. And there's, but without, without divine and human love, those, they can fail because we all carry a hell within us that must be addressed and repented of. And that, that is the human journey towards salvation. And, and whether it's because there's nobody who taught him that uh, or, or if it's because that hell was stronger than the types or a combination of both, that's one of the contemplations of this novel. Can we um, can we just talk about the story of the Delacys a little bit, both you know thematically and structurally? Yeah. Um, I had uh, a note right in front of me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, since we're kind of in the in the middle of that now. Yeah. Um, so chapter six is where the primary gist of that story is delivered to us, right? Yeah. Josh, you summarized it a little bit. Um, was there something specific you want to touch on, Karen? Um, I mean, there's just, there's just so much. I, I, I guess I'll start with something I alluded to, you know, or an episode or so ago, just that this is really the, this is the literal center of the story, you know, just structurally and thematically. Um, we have a story within the story within a story. Well, the DeLacy story is the one that's in the, in the middle. Um, and so we need to think about that structurally. Um, if, if readers out there are asking, what is this doing here? Um, why, what does this, you know, this isn't what in any of the film versions or whatever, um, then I think that's something that we need to, to touch upon. What is this story doing here? We've, ta- we've already mentioned some of the things, um, but one main thing that it's doing is presenting kind of the romantic, the idyllic romantic life, right? The, 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 the family, this lovely family uh, who 
love one another, living in a cottage in the woods, happy, playing music. I mean, you can't get more romantic than this. And then, then the lover come, the, 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 you know, estranged lover comes along and then, you know, you can't even really get happier than that. Um, yet at the same time, there are all these sort of holes in the story. Um, these, you yeah. know, again, this questioning of this romantic, um, idyllic life and so the monster's looking in he's seeing this picture of a romantic life wants to be part of it thinks he can be part of it but of course it falls short i mean he can't he's he's gravely mistaken when he thinks that he will uh so there, there are yeah. shortcomings to romanticism here so i'll, I'll just stop there that's there's, there's just so much in this <laughs> there's even the like the idea that the reason they're there is because they were participating in this just you know in this cause that then cause them to be exiled and that you know there's a sort of you know but wasn't percy shelley you know didn't he uh he wasn't didn't die in greece or something like that well one of the romantic was it byron maybe who died, byron byron did, died yes, in greece byron. In the, mm-hmm. you know fighting in which of course hadn't happened yet which is so interesting mm. um but it's like and this is such a you know you even look at wordsworth and and coleridge and all these guys who you know they mm-hmm. they they, you know, Wordsworth and Coleridge were off at one point when they were young, and then they got dis, you know, sort of mm-hmm. disenchanted with all these causes that they were involved in. But that, you know, being involved in a cause that gets you exiled to the woods to have to live there is like yeah. the ultimate romantic, <laughs> right? Uh, the ultimate romantic. I, you know, it's the ultimate romantic. Um, That's a great question. Uh, what's the uh, like punishment? <laughs> <laughs> like to get because you get sent to the woods reward. exactly the reward yeah, yeah. is to, to get sent to the woods because you did something noble i mean how much better can it get, get than that uh, and then to have your uh your lover join you there like it's like <laughs> the dream right there um d- what is it about their story that you think most is compelling to the monster because it seems to awaken in him so sort of personhood you know his his view on the he begins to have a view of the world because he watches these people for a year not only does he learn stuff you know like skills and how how to read and write Mm -hmm. and things that are a little bit unbelievable of course but there's also he he, his eyes are open to you know he's sort of developing a world view if 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 you will so what is it that he sees there that that transforms him in that way and opens his eyes and, and is so compelling to him do you think I mean, artistically, I just think this is the most brilliant part of the story because, because you know, as you've already mentioned, you know, plot-wise, this is how Shelley has him learn um, to read and learn English, you know. I mean, it's, real, it's really quite believable <laughs> in a sense that this is how he learned, you know, he learns to read and, and to study English, but he also learns about family and he learns about romantic love, Um just by observing mm-hmm. from the outside. Um, there are just so many psychological, literary, sociological, philosophical truisms that, uh, truths that come, come out through this sort of drama within the larger drama. But I don't know. I want to hear what Josh and Heidi have to say. Well, Josh, you had that, that uh, squinty contemplative look that like as if you were about to say something. So... No, I, I mean, I think, uh, I think Karen asked a great question. Um, I forget if it was Karen or your name. Uh, what is it about the DeLacy family that awakens the monster to a desire for 
romance for um, uh, for a desire a desire for companionship. So I mean, part of it's Paradise Lost, but um, Paradise Lost will only be an abstraction to the monster unless he sees that it's possible for such romance to play out in the material world. Yeah, um, which is mm-hmm. why a good education um, cannot be. Uh, you know, sequestered off in the realm of abstraction. There's a lot of there's a lot of living that must be done that helps make sense of classic literature. Um, you, there's a good bit in Paradise Lost that will not make sense to you until you've been betrayed by someone you love, uh, and and until you've experienced that. The book can't make sense of it for you. Um, So one of the reasons why we need to go back to classic literature over the course of our lives is because we gain more and more experiences by which to understand classic literature. So, I mean, when you understand, you know, when you read Paradise Lost at the age of 16, you simply haven't done enough living to understand most of the book. You've done some living. You can understand some of the book. But when you come back to it, you know, 21, 26, 31, uh, you will have experienced, you know, the death of a friend, probably, by the time you hit 31. Uh, you will have had your heart broken by then. You will um, perhaps have married and have a child and have all manner of fears that uh, emerge for the safety of a child that you cannot absolutely guarantee. Uh, and Paradise Lost will make more and more sense the more and more you live. Um, but, uh, but the question... Um, of what exactly the monster sees in the DeLacy family that he wants um, is very interesting. Uh, how exactly the monster's life would have been changed if he had witnessed Felix and Agatha break up is another interesting sort of question. Uh, what, if they, what if they weren't perfect romantic partners and they had a normal sort of relationship? Uh, what would the monster make of that? Um, and also, it, it's interesting that having observed the DeLacy family and having read Paradise Lost, that the relationship that he wants is a romantic one, not a familial one. Uh, he doesn't want a relationship like DeLacy has with Felix. Uh, he doesn't want a relationship like God has with Adam. He wants a relationship like Adam has with Eve, uh, which is intriguing. Hmm. I've never thought about that before, hmm. that his next step is is immediately the romantic connection i think that that's a fascinating um observation josh thank you for that i'm gonna think about that i think the thing that he wants is love so is that the most intense form of love and so that's the one that he most gravitates to yeah and i think that's what i'm why i'm so intrigued by josh's question because it seems um a it's a very compelling, compelling question uh, because this, I think when he sees the family, he's drawn to that domestic ideal, um, that core human unit, uh, which is the family. And there's multiple connections in that household. There is a romantic one. There's the sibling one. There's father and daughter. There's uh, father and son. There's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, of connections, but the one that he takes away as a longing, as a desire that he has attached, if I were to have this, I would be happy and then it would be good, is the romantic one. And 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 I I think that that is a worthwhile interpretive question 
But I do think the thing he's drawn to is the idea of human connection. It's, it's, it's to love and be loved and to see that these loved people are both happy and good is, is, is compelling to him and awakens in him longings that go beyond the books. And I think that that's an interesting because he sees that first and then he finds the books, which in some ways is entirely pragmatic because he has to observe them in order to learn how to speak and how to read in order to get to the books. Um, but it is that uh, he says that he longs for that and for virtue and for happiness and for love even before he gets to the books. Yeah, it is It is only after the monster tries to incorporate himself in the DeLacy family and fails that he decides to seek out romantic love. Right. Um, and it's, it's a little interesting that having failed, uh, that having failed to, to incorporate himself into the DeLacy family, he's absolutely confident that a spouse, a sister, as ugly as he is, will necessarily love him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and again, parallels to Victor and Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Um, Elizabeth... Is brought into the is brought in, brought into the Frankenstein family to be a spouse for Victor. Right, she is objectified. She never has any choice, and the monster wants Victor to create a woman for him who will have no choice but to love him. The monster doesn't want the female to have the freedom to make a decision to love him or not. He simply assumes because that she the will. Yeah, the way that Alphonse and Caroline assume that Elizabeth will be the one for Victor. And this is another case. I mean, you know, as noble and sympathetic as the monster sometimes is, he adopts all of his father's faulty understandings of women. He just objectifies them and and, and reduces them to beings who can't be held responsible for what they do and essentially exist for the pleasure of another person. That's what this female is going to be. It's not, look, it's not a companion the monster will get if one is created that can only serve as a romantic partner and nothing else. That's not a companion. That's a slave. If the, if the female monster is created for one end only, serves only one purpose, she's not being treated like a person. But of course, we're going to find that she's not treated like a person later on when she's aborted halfway through her creation. That's right. So how does that fit with, Josh, I'm curious your thoughts on this. How does what you're saying fit with one of the types he has, which is the Paradise Lost narrative? Is that what he's attaching the romantic desire to, or is it the DeLacy family, in your opinion? Well, ask the question one more time. Where is he getting his desire for a female counterpart? Is it from his observations of the DeLacy family, or is it from the reading of Paradise Lost and um, and Goethe? It seems as though this is the... This is a, a union of these two things um, because he needs the he needs the literature to present it as an agreeable as a, as agreeable and he needs the DeLacy family to present it as possible. So it has to right. be both desirable and possible in order for him to desire it, um, or it has to be, it has to be good and achievable. In other words, and I think that Paradise Law suggests that it's achievable, or that Paradise Law suggests that it's good. good. And the DeLacy family suggests that it's possible. And so, you know, as with any education, you need, you need both of these things, um, which is why you've got to do a lot of living in order to make sense of paradise laws. 
I'm looking over these pages where he describes what he was learning from the different books and even from the story. Because he says, the beginning of chapter eight, I get, nope, seven, sorry. Such was the history of my beloved cottagers, which is an interesting word, beloved. Um, it impressed me deeply. I learned from the views of social life which it developed to admire their virtues and to deprecate the vices of mankind. So it does seem that in them he sort of, well, he gets a sense for the notions of right and wrong. He gets a sense that there are such things as virtues right. and that there are right ways of living and wrong ways of living, that you can make right, right decisions and wrong decisions. Um, and he says, and yet I looked upon crime as a distant evil. Um, mm-hmm. So, And then he goes into this telling of the book, of, of finding the books. So is it the books that reveal to him that, that crime is not so distant and evil? Is that what he's saying there? Read the second half of that sentence. That the crime... And as yet, I looked upon crime as a distant evil. Benevolence and generosity were ever present before me, inciting within me a desire to become an actor in the busy scene where so many admirable qualities were called forth and displayed. But in giving an account of the progress of my intellect, I must not omit a circumstance which occurred in the beginning of the August of the same year. And then one night during my accustomed visit to the neighboring wood, he finds the books. So what I like that sentence, that sentence stood out to me in my reading that, that crime was not yet imagined by him, but benevolence, goodness, and those other adjectives he uses, I still can't remember. Benevolence and generosity. Um, Thank you. Are are still so compelling. That's what he's drawn to. And, and so I'm curious, and I want to hear y'all's answer to this because what Josh says is what Josh, what you just said about the monster lady being like a slave is curious to me. And I want to hear y'all's thoughts on this because I have always read his desire for a female monster um, as natural, as, as his attempt to imitate Eden. This is his, his attempt to become, to immerse himself in the story of the world um, to have a light like companion to him, you said earlier, if the female monster is born born out of um, impiety, then it's just another gross distortion of of the natural order and um, or you you proposed that and and so I'm curious, but I've always thought of it as like natural like the Truly, in this, in the true word of, in the true sense of the word, he wants an Eve. If he is an Adam, he wants an Eve, and that's the first step towards a redemptive story. But I might, I'm perfect. So, do you all see this as a distorted desire on the monster's part? Yeah, you I, asked, sorry, Karen, okay. go ahead. No, go, I, I mean, I see it as a natural desire on his part, but it again goes back to the picture of creation that we're getting mm-hmm. that. We didn't ask to be created or born, so we are slaves to our God. You know, it, it, it's. Mm-hmm. It, I think that's that's in some ways the essence of the of the romantic and the, the our, our the current worldview about about God that God was evil to create human beings who suffer and uh, fall. I think that, Heidi, you ask a fair question. I want to I want to ex- explain why I think the monsters request is different than Adam's request. Um, again, this strikes me as a case where the monster has misread or, or only given a very shallow reading of Paradise Lost. Um, because while Adam does ask for a companion, 
it is implied that Adam's companion, uh, the highest point of appeal for Adam's companion will not be Adam, but God. And Eve is free because her highest obligation is to God, not to Adam. Whereas the monster is asking for a creature to be made whose highest obligation is to himself. And the reason why husbands and wives are, are free as opposed to being in bondage is because their highest obligation is to God, not to one another. Uh, but, but when one's highest obligation is to God, there is freedom. And following the dictates of God over the dictates of man uh, is what makes one free. The monster doesn't get this, though, because in the monster's view of romance, the creator is entirely cut out of the situation. So God, is, God creates Adam to be his companion. Eve is Adam's companion, but they're both God's companions. God walked with both of them in the cool of the evening. Whereas the monster says, give me what I want and I'm going to leave. You will have no say over this. And this woman's highest obligation will be to me. So there's a sense in which Eve is created for Adam, but there's also a sense in which Eve is created for God. God wants Eve. And so does Adam. And thus Eve is capable of satisfying both human and divine uh, desires. But this new monster is not going to satisfy any divine desire. It exists purely for the monster. But it, it strikes me that a lot of, uh, as we pointed out before, that this is just an adolescent conception of romance. Right. That, that girlfriends and boyfriends exist for the sake of one another. Uh, and that both, you know, parents, society, God, uh, the Montagues and the Capulets have nothing to do with, uh, you know, this self-contained, discreet, hermetically sealed off relationship between lovers. Karen, you have been, it looks like you're, you're, you know, reading passages or busily flipping through the book or something. So I would, I would love to know what you're, <laughs> we, 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 we've kind of, uh, we, you, you've been a little quiet for the last little while. So we got to turn the floor over to you for a minute here, at least. No, I don't think I've been quiet at all. I've been I've been taking notes and thinking because I still have to look back at Paradise Lost uh, before I before I don't we all write what I'm going to write about this. Um, so so no, I I mean I just I uh, still think that uh, the overarching understanding of the monster and his desire for a companion and his relationship with his creator is one in which, um, you know, we, it reflects a worldview in which we, we are kind of angry at God for creating us, I guess. Um, right. And, you know, feel like we are slaves because we didn't ask to be born. So. Yeah. He says, when he's reading Paradise Lost, the monster says it moved every feeling of wonder and awe that the picture of an omnipotent God warring with his creatures was capable of exciting. Mm -hmm. And that's when I first read that, I kind of glossed over it. And, mm -hmm. and then, but then when you think about it, you think about like what are when you that particular concept of God, as you're saying, of, of an omnipotent God warring with his creatures, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. feelings of wonder and awe that that would create are sort of the feelings of wonder and awe that our age. Mm -hmm. is grappling with um yes. so you know mm -hmm. i'm yeah maybe, I mean, maybe and, our age needs to read plutarch and that that is not the christian conception right. of god's relationship with his creation right that he's no. nor is it milton's right right like, right right, right. Like, that's 
to your point, we've all made the point he's reading the book wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And that it's very clear in Milton's Paradise Lot. He is justifying the ways of God to men. He just says it in mm-hmm. and and <laughs> and but to your point, David, and to what you said earlier, Karen, that there is an implied posture within the novel that God is warring with his creatures Mm -hmm. and that the creatures are then in this impossible situation. They find themselves in the position of the monster. Right, right. And and that's not their fault. Um, Which I was so intrigued by what you said about the normative, that the lack of a a normative, um, uh, you know, nobody telling us Mm -hmm. what we're supposed to think about the monster, what we're supposed to think about Victor. and and I think that that's true. And this has often been called the first modern novel because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and but that's what makes the novel so rich, right? There's just mm-hmm. this primeval kind of mythological muck that you have to roll around in in order to grapple with this with this novel. It feels like mud wrestling sometimes, um, and you kind of walk away like, ugh like just covered with it. And I, and I think that that is what makes it great. Um, but there is an implied, there is an assumption within the novel that the creator is fundamentally vindictive and rejecting towards the creation. And to you, what you just said, it's important to know that is not the Christian ethic. That's not right. the story. They're, belie- they're all embracing the wrong story of the world. Mm-hmm. Well, we... Uh- you know, we talked for an hour and a half and it feels like we barely, barely touched the surface. <laughs> I want to ask you one last question before we go. And you can answer this quickly if, you, if you'd like. Through this point in the book, uh, through volume two, chapter nine, to what degree do you have sympathy for the monster? And to what... Well, I'll just, I'll just end my question there. How much sympathy do you have for the monster at this point, at this point in the story? Far, far more than I do for Victor. Far more. But... So yeah, I think I would say I'm sympathetic to the monster, but not blind to the hell within him and that he has the that he's created within the world. So sympathetic without letting him off the hook. Okay. Josh? I like sympathetic without letting him off the hook. I think that's good. I I, I feel I feel some degree of sympathy for almost everyone in this story, albeit mm-hmm. not in equal amounts because some of them wrong others in horrific ways. Uh, Victor wrongs his child in the same ways that he was wronged. And it's hard to say how Alphonse was raised. He probably absorbed a good deal of his own parents' sin. So, um, you know, I suppose, uh, I suppose they all live these sort of lamentable, terrible lives. And I feel, I feel pity for all of them. Hmm. Karen? Yeah, I, I I feel quite a bit of sympathy for the monster, um, and um, I think we're supposed to, uh, based yeah. on this false myth of, you know, a cruel god who creates people that abandons them, or monsters, so. So, I want to I wanna, um, bring back the question I asked you at the beginning, and I, I'd love to hear, love to hear you talk a little bit more about why you chose Frankenstein for your series, especially if it perpetuates or... Perpetuates maybe the wrong word, <laughs> although it proposes what you call a false myth that is not consistent with mm-hmm. the Christian ethic. 
Yeah, well, I mean, this series is for Christian readers. And I think, um, I mean, anyone can read it, but obviously that's that's my target audience. Mm-hmm. And I think Christians need to understand the the worldviews and the, and the origins of the worldviews that are prevailing in our culture today. I mean, um, and there's no better way to, to understand those and engage with them um, than to read works like this. So mm-hmm. I think this is a, an important book for Christians to read for that reason alone, aside from its literary qualities. Hmm. All right. Last thing before we go, pitch something. Go the other way. Karen, you first. Oh my goodness. I have, uh, I have nothing to pitch. I will pitch the, uh, the, the, the conference coming up in a couple of weeks um, that I'll be part of and presenting on. So yeah, I'll pitch that. Yeah. Thank you. If, if anybody wants to learn <laughs> more about that, you can uh, go to the, go to the website and go to cerceinstitute.com and uh, get the information on that. It's a free conference that we're doing and we had to postpone this year's summer conference. We do a conference every year if you're new and we had to postpone it to next summer. So we're doing a free online version with a lot of speakers. Karen speaking, Heidi speaking, um, Anthony Esselin speaking, lots, lots of people. You can, you can check that out. Josh, what do you want to plug? Your, your story collection? No, I'm very excited to announce that I'll be teaching online classes next year through a website that I'm launching in the next several weeks. My first class will be Foundations of Modern Politics. It will be open to anyone 15 and up, a great books class that meets Friday afternoon. And uh, either next week or the week after, I'll have a web address for that site. Oh, nice. That's exciting. Congratulations. Thanks. Working on it regularly when I'm not, uh, <laughs> when I'm not finishing up this, this new book, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, Heidi. I'm going to plug the Forma Summer Reading Guide, which you can download. Uh, there's links on Instagram and on Facebook. Uh, you can find that uh, for your summer reading needs. We had a really fun time creating some guidelines <laughs> for summer reading that are lighthearted, but also we think really... Some, some strategies. Yeah, there's some good stuff on there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, thanks to all three of you. Thank you for your, your time and your insight. And as always, it's been really fun. So for Karen Swallow Pryor, for Joshua Gibbs, and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next week, happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.